James chapter 4, verse 13 through 17. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a time, uh, spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. God, we pray your blessings on your word, and uh, just teach us by it, and uh, edify the church through it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you know much about the book of James, if you've read it, studied it, it's a very, it's known as a very practical book. It's a book in which we are instructed as followers of Christ how to live, how to act, how to speak, when to speak, to be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. There's many, there are many admonitions in the book of James. But it's also a very doctrinal book. It teaches us great truths and great doctrine of, about God and about the Christian faith. And it also teaches about the grace of God. And how the grace of God precedes our abilities to live and act and speak. In other words, we, we, we cannot teach this book as if we have some innate ability to do what it's calling us to do. And just look at it and say, well, this is a practical book, how to live. Just look at it, read it, and do what it says. Because we understand that what we are called to do is based on who we are in Christ and because of the power of the one who now lives within us. For example, just previous to this text I read, I'm sure you are familiar with verses 7 and 8, which um, if you look back, says, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. That's a great admonition, but... A lot of times it's given out of the context which it is put in, the verse right before it, but he gives more grace. So submitting to God and resisting the devil is based on the grace of God that we have been given and it's the ability of God in Christ to cause these things to happen. So we ought to keep that in mind as we're reading through James because a lot of people pull things from James out in um try to whoop people over the head with the Bible and say, you got to do this and that. Look what James says. And James don't talk about grace. He just talks about doing, doing things. But James does talk about grace. And everything that James tells us to do and the Bible teaches us to do uh, is based on who we are in Christ, right? I mean, there's so much, so many places, uh, books that are written like that. Ephesians is written by that, like that. Half the book of Ephesians, the first half is doctrinal, and who we are in Christ, the other half is, hey, now because of who you are in Christ, do these things. And um, we need to keep that in mind. So to get the flow of where we are, since we're just jumping right into James chapter 4 and the end of it at that, I believe we're still in the context of chapter 3, which is teaching about godly wisdom. Here's some of those things that we are called to attain, but because of the grace of God we attain these things, not just by our own ability. God gives believers wisdom. And wisdom, this wisdom of God, shares characteristics with the fruit of the Spirit. We are told there in chapter 3 that godly wisdom is pure and peaceable and gentle and open to reason, full of mercy and good 
fruits and impartial and sincere. So from that context, James now moves on to discuss in chapter 4 what happens to the children of God that do not have practice, practice or do not have or practice godly wisdom. He says in the beginning of chapter 4, they fight and they war and they covet and they cannot obtain, so they fight more and they don't know how to ask God for things. All these things are characteristic of those who do not have or practice godly wisdom that comes from God. They're self-centered. They commit spiritual murder, James says. They hate. And rather than being friends with God, they express enmity with God and become lovers of the world. And they rebel against the Spirit of God within them. But then, as James, as I've already read in verse 6, he says, but God gives more grace. He opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so our only acceptable position before God, according to James, is submission. Because he is in control. And once we submit to God and resist the devil, all these things become part of the Christian life. Not because some of us are better at it than others, but because of the grace of God which is within us. You can't be a friend of the world without being an enmity with God. Which is why James says, those of us who are enmity with God, friends of the world, were adulterers and adulteresses because we have cheated we have been unfaithful to the one who is our greatest love. There's just so much great admonition. Humble yourself before the Lord. He'll exalt you. Don't speak against your brother. Don't judge him wrongly. God judges by his law. So it's in that context that we come to the verses I read to you. This context of godly wisdom versus worldly wisdom. And really just worldliness against godliness. That demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit and the love of God is something that ought to be characteristic of the people of God. And it's not wrong for us to make that statement. Hey, here's how your life is supposed to be according to the scriptures because you're in Christ. Now, we can also say, as we always do, yeah, but my life don't always look like that. I don't always do these things. Well, that's when you don't try harder. You turn to Christ and you submit to him. And you realize that because of him, he's calling you to do these things. And so James says, even further, living in this humility before God with this godly wisdom, also acknowledge God's sovereignty and providence in all of life. Come now, he says, you who say today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and profit. You don't even know what tomorrow will bring. Your life is a little bitty like a mist. It appears for a little while and then vanishes. So the way we ought to live, James says, is that if the Lord wills, we'll live and do this or that. But you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. Whoever knows to do right and don't do it to him, it is sin. Now it's interesting in this context, whatever, whoever knows to do right and don't do it would be all the things that James has said up to this point about godly wisdom and the way we're supposed to love each other. But also I think it would be in this context of Surrendering to the fact that God is sovereign and in control and his providence rules. So in this context of humility versus pride and arrogance versus humility and obedience. There comes this idea that we are to acknowledge God and his rule in this world and in our life. James is saying, who are you to make plans that don't even consider the providence of God? 
You make plans as if you are in control of tomorrow, and you boast in your arrogance. That's nothing but evil. We are to make plans. That's not evil. But making plans, forgetting that God is the one in control of the outcome. We read Proverbs 19, 21. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it's the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Why would this be evil? Is it evil to make plans? No. I don't think God condemns us for making plans. In fact, he often tells us and encourages us to make plans. There's another proverb, 21 and 5, that says, The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty becomes will come only to poverty. So the Bible doesn't condemn making plans. That's not what James is saying. Nor does the Bible condemn hard work or successful and profitable work. In fact, that proverb just said, God often rewards diligence and condemns the opposite of that. Proverbs 12 and 27, the lazy man does not roast what he took in hunting, but diligence is a man's precious possession. So hard work and good work ethic and providing for a family and all these things while maintaining good character and godly standards of excellence is a great honor to God. So we don't need to take the extreme on either side. We can't say, well, I guess James is saying not to make plans at all. Just whatever happens will happen. God's in charge. No, we can't take that stance. And we can't take the stance that James is warning about living as though God's not in control at all. We're in control. A lot of times that seems to be what we teach in most churches. We so enamored, are enamored with our wills that we almost think that God has done some stuff and now we got to do some stuff. And they don't ever cross paths, you know, except when we need something, when we start praying and asking God to do things for us. And the problem here, I believe, is that the evil is an attitude of self, an attitude of arrogance, and almost like just really forgetting that God is in control. And it's so easy to do when you get to living day to day. And you're doing all, you got to get up and do this. You know what's got to be done. And you do make plans. And I think that's what James is saying to his hearers. Hey, stop for a minute and be reminded. All these things you've been called to do, you've been called by a sovereign God to do them. And he'll work these things out in your life. We will not succeed without God. And we may not succeed in the way we think of succeeding anyways. Remember the promise to those who humble themselves and submit to God and everything. Everything in life. So that your attitude is, if the Lord wills, we'll do this and that. And again, it's not a, it's not a means of laziness. It's not a means of escape. Well, you know, I'm not going to worry about that because if God's going to work it out, he'll work it out. We were talking about this earlier. You know, a lot of people accuse uh, those of us in the camp that we exist in and believe in the scriptures according to a Reformed theology that we don't believe in preaching the gospel and evangelism because, eh, God's going to save who he wants to. Why bother? That's not true. We don't get to escape for that reason. But also, I don't believe this is just a magical incantation of some kind. I don't think James is saying, hey, if you just get up every morning and say these words, if the Lord wills, then everything's going to work out. Because we so want a formula, don't we? We want something, just tell me what to do or what to say. 
Give me a little step-by-step process that God will just bless me and give me the things that I desire. It's not a magical recitation that James is suggesting. We think that sometimes. I was reminded of a song. I don't know if it's still out there, but I don't know how long ago it was being played, but this is the words to the song. Life gets tough and times get hard. It's hard to find the truth in all the lies. If you're tired of wondering why your heart isn't healing and nothing feels like home, because you're lost and alone, just screaming at the sky when you don't know what to say, just say Jesus. There's power in the name of Jesus. If the words won't come because you're afraid to pray, just say Jesus. I don't think that's what James is saying. Hey, if you've got problems in your life, things aren't working out, your plans are failing, just say these words. If the Lord wills, it'll all work out. No, I think it's more in the context here of this wisdom that comes from God, this attitude and um, understanding of life that God is in control. And if you're reasoning this out and thinking through it, your life, that is, with no thought of God, then you need to slow down and be reminded of this. This is not mere words, but it's the tenor of your life. You are a mist that vanishes, a vapor in the wind, like the grass of the field up today and withered away tomorrow. And I think James' point is, look, you're leaving God out of this, and you're but a weak little fragile being, a finite little being that will be gone soon. God is in control, you're not. Another proverb, 16 and 9, a man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Why? Because it's God alone who's all-powerful and all-knowing and all-sufficient. It's God alone who's sovereign. And only God has providence over his creation. So the point of this text, I believe, this idea of recognizing, giving it, God giving us grace to be reminded that He is in control. He is sovereign and complete ruler over all. That's what sovereign means. Providence is how God governs according to the rule and power that He has. He does act in this creation. We're not deists. We don't believe that God put everything in motion and He's disappeared. Or sitting in heaven watching it all pan out. We're not Pantheists, we don't believe that God is one with his creation. We believe God is providential. He created it. He is separate from it and distinct from it, but he is still sovereign ruler over it all. His decrees come to pass, and he has decreed all things that happen, and they do happen. We don't believe in randomness or chance, but in providence, whether it be good, bad, or ugly. Sometimes that's difficult to grasp. I had someone just last week say, well, surely you can't believe there's any purpose in all this war and killing. Well, I hope so, because if there's no purpose in it, there's no purpose in anything that's ever happened. I can't explain the purpose in it. I can't say I'm excited about it. I think it's awful and evil, and I don't think God likes it. But there has to be some purpose in it. The same way as there was purpose in Joseph's brothers selling him into slavery instead of killing him. They wanted to kill him. They thought they were good as killing him by selling him into slavery. 
or when David committed adultery with Bathsheba and there was a baby born as a result. But the Bible says the Lord struck the child and it died. That's a hard, that would be a difficult sermon to preach. I don't know how and why God does what he does, but I have to believe that it's for a reason. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. He hardened the hearts of the Egyptians against the people. And of course, that passage in Isaiah 45 and 7, where God said, I form the light and I create darkness. I make peace and I create calamity. Those are difficult things for us to grasp, but it's the truth of the scripture of who God is. This teaching boggles our minds. I think we've become accustomed to such a weak and effeminate version of God that when the true God of the Bible is preached, we think he's mean and hateful. And we'd rather choose an idea that we just think, well, that's just the will of people doing this. this is not, God doesn't have anything to do with that. I know I've shared with you before a friend of mine who was at a funeral of a young child and the preacher of the funeral looked at the family and said, God had nothing to do with this. And even my friend said, I mean, where do you go from there to give hope? There's nothing left. There's no hope. It's tragedy. And you don't, you don't want to get up and gleefully say, don't worry, God is in control of this. But you also don't want to lie to people and say, you know, apparently God was sleeping or not looking. They're difficult things, but we live in a world that's difficult, riddled with sin. The fallen world that we live in is difficult. But creating a God that we can find palatable is not a comfort to anybody. A God who is still holy and right and does what is good, even when all we can see is evil, that's a little bit more of a comfort to me. God is still God. He's not held captive by anything. He's not held captive by the will of men either. It's amazing that we think God can overcome anything except the will of men. I long for the days back when God was acknowledged as the sovereign of the universe, the only wise potentate and king of kings and lord of lords. I know I've said this before, but sometimes watching old movies, even old westerns, it's amazing the sovereignty that people acknowledge, even in evil and wickedness and death and sorrow. Well, it's the Lord's will. It's the Lord's will. There used to be an acknowledgement of divine providence, especially in our pulpits, that God was in control of the crops produced. He's also in charge when the crops didn't produce. And you can look at a farmer and say, you didn't till the ground well, you didn't tend the, you didn't tend the garden well. And that would be true. But it's God who gives the increase. Because sometimes it was tended well and it was it was tilled well and tended well and still didn't give an increase they understood that those things came from God whether the sun was shining or the storms were blowing and now we live in a world where we only have a tendency to give God credit when we like things we like the outcomes things that we're comfortable with things that we can live with 
And so sometimes even us who do like to try to acknowledge God as sovereign, we live as though he's not. And I think that's what James is saying. So whoever knows to do the right thing and don't do it, to him it is sin. Even if it's acknowledging that God is in control and living as though God's in control. When you know God's in complete control but fail to act accordingly and acknowledge that, you sin. We know that we're sinners and we sin in a lot of ways. And the truth is sometimes we fail at this too. Because we do. We just get so we just get so overwhelmed by the circumstances of life that it's easy to think that God's forgotten or He's not in control. Or He's failed. Or He's not paying attention. And so as a church, as God's people, we want to keep this in perspective and hold on to it. He is sovereign. He's sovereign over creation. He's sovereign over salvation. He's sovereign over hell, heaven, believers, unbelievers, angels, demons, the devil, the Middle East. Whatever's going on, he's sovereign. That's why we call him God. That's what it means to be God. And if he gives up any bit of that, he's no longer God. If God is not in control of something, he's not God. And so I pray for you in your life and me as well that we would help, be helped by the Spirit to live this way. And when we recognize we're not, we, we go to Christ and He gives us repentance and we learn to live under, again, these admonitions. Not just, okay, Lord, teach me how to live that I don't have to really do anything because you're in control. But no, because you are in control, then Lord, teach me how to live the way you call me to live because... I don't want to just continue to be disobedient, disobedient and keep sinning when I have the word of God and I have the scriptures to tell me what to do and how to live. And I think that's the proper view of James. James is not anti-grace. He is full of grace and understands grace. And he understands that grace changes people. And hey, glory that it does. I mean... We can't say, hey, being a Christian is no big deal because it doesn't affect your life. Well, I hope it does. And when I see it doesn't, I, I, I recognize the problem is me, not with God or the Bible or the admonitions to do right and to do well. What it is is sin because I know to do right and I don't do it. And so that's our call because Christ died that we don't have to live in sin. That we don't have to be in bondage to it. Romans 6 says, those of us who are in Christ, we are no longer slave, enslaved to sin, but we've been set free and made a slave to righteousness. Which is a good thing. It's a good alternative to be a slave to righteousness. Because there's so much freedom in that. Because our righteousness is from Christ. So put your faith in Him. Know that He is a God who saves and He is a God who does right, even if we can't see it in our little finite world, in our little finite brains. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And God, I pray you'd help us because we do all want to live. If we're, if we're believers, we want to obey Christ. I mean, we see that even from his early disciples. They wanted to. They believed they could. They often failed. They even all abandoned him, as we've been seeing in Mark's account of the Passion. They all left. Some kind of followed him a little bit of afraid of being caught. Some lied. They denied him. But they wanted to do what's right. And after the resurrection, they found more power to do what was right. They still failed at times. We do too, but 
We thank you for these warnings and these encouragements and admonitions in Scripture that call us to right living, but they don't call us to it with no power to do it. They remind us that because of who we are in Christ, the grace and the foundation of the Lord that's brought us to repentance, that is our encouragement to live out the Scriptures. And when we fail, we realize more that our hope is in Christ and not in us. Teach us that more every day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.